Advantage has teamed up with SoCal Youth Rugby to provide athletic trainers at all matches from Orange County to San Luis Obispo. If you are in Orange County, Los Angeles County, San Bernardino, Santa Barbara, or San Luis Obispo areas and looking for contract work on the weekends, visit our website, theadvantage.com, for more info and to apply. Hello, and thank you for joining us on The Business Advantage. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training. Today, we're going to be talking about professional etiquette. Before I go too far, wanted to chat with you about a new segment that we're starting where we encourage our listeners to share what they're doing on a daily basis, and we will reply, retweet, or promote if that post is hashtag that's business. We want to show everyone how so much of what we do on an everyday basis has business intertwined with it. So today we are talking about professional etiquette. I wanted to talk about this because there seems to be a lot of ambiguity on this topic throughout the profession. I commonly see posts on social media about this and thought it would be worth trying to nail down some common understandings of what is professional. I think that athletic trainers struggle with professionalism more than other professions because of the nature of our work. The population that we most commonly work with and that we see most often wears sweatpants or workout clothes. And we're sort of surrounded by this acceptance of athleisure wear. I didn't make that word up. I promise it's a new word. Check it in the dictionary, athleisure. Anyways, uh, you know, in that, I think that we lose sight of the fact that we're the healthcare practitioner. And instead, we start to give in to that comfort of the environment that is around us. And it's easy when you're not in a clinical or a sterile type of environment to see yourself more on the athletics side of things instead of healthcare. But I think that's why we just need to talk about what are those common grounds that we can all agree on. The reason this is important to discuss is that there are differing opinions and it may hurt or help us professionally. So I thought that if we could lay some grand rules, perhaps we could all move in a direction where we are seen more professionally. I do want to preface the remaining aspects of this podcast with this idea of kind of erring on the side of caution. Just like we do when we're managing our patients, when it comes to professional etiquette, If you have a question as to whether it would be okay or not, I would say err on the side of caution and maybe not. So in listening today, just understand that maybe some of these ideas are a tad bit more conservative, but it's better to be safe. Okay, let's start out by defining etiquette. It is conventional requirements as to social behavior, with conventional meaning conforming or adhering to accepted standards. The word etiquette is actually derived from the Greek word for graceful, elegant, or manifesting good form or bearing. So what etiquette really focuses on is politeness, courtesy, manners, and respectfulness. With that, know that there will be people who are willing to accept lower levels of professionalism or not be as strict with their idea of professional demeanor. However, in discussing this, we are going to take the approach of universal acceptance and understanding in that effort to kind of err on the side of caution. So thinking about, for example, with manners or politeness, some people think that men should always hold the door for women, but some women feel that they don't need to have the door held for them. So 
we're going to take that little bit more conservative and universal acceptance and say, for example, men should hold the door for women. Obviously, that's not necessarily applicable, but just an example so that you understand kind of where we're coming from. Let's start out by discussing emails. This is one area where athletic trainers commonly have to use to communicate with other people, whether it be coaches or peers or parents, whoever it may be. And so in entering any email, you need to understand what is your essence or what are you trying to accomplish by sending this message? Are you introducing yourself? Are you sending information? Are you seeking information? Keep that in mind as you're writing the email so that you can be articulate and succinct. I have a little rule that I like to use, which is five sentences or less. Try to get everything that you're trying to say across in five or less sentences. If you think about messages that come through your inbox, I think you'll understand why I say five sentences. Because when you click on that email and you see paragraphs long, what is your instinct? Is it to read it or is it to try to save it for later or think I don't have time to read this? However, if it's two sentences, three sentences, pretty much up to five sentences, the possibility of your email being read and responded to more immediately increases. So try to keep that succinctness into that limit. As well, try to use language that portrays who you are both professionally, but also your personality. You don't have to be so rigid or tight and strict with your words just because you're sending an email to a physician. The person who's accepting that email is a person as well. They're a human being. They want to see who you are as a person. Maybe it's a parent. And if you come across as too rigid, it's just not going to read as well as if you were just who you are. Try to write how you speak. And, you know, aside from grammatical errors and, you know, common writing and typing rules, I would say try to be who you are when you write an email. And always, you know, open up with the proper surname, uh, Mr., Mrs., Doctor, whatever it is, and then always be sure to end and thank them for their consideration, thank them for their time, thank them for their understanding, whatever it may be that you feel like best portrays your voice. You know, very often we see sincerely or, um, you know, I feel like that's kind of like the, I'm fresh out of school and this is what I think I need to have as my email closing. Um, But oftentimes the word sincerely doesn't necessarily apply to what was written in that email. So try to keep this something customized for yourself, you know, thanks or um, in consideration or uh, thank you for your time, something along those lines so that it comes across as unique and genuine to the reader who is receiving this. Moving on to phone calls. If you're anything like me, or several of my peers, maybe it's a uh, millennial thing. I hate phone calls. I'm awkward on the phone. I tend to carry on and say things unnecessarily. I do think that I'm getting better the more that I do it, but I would so much rather just write an email or a text message. But sometimes a phone call is the most direct way to get information across or It would be beneficial for the person on the other line to hear your voice or maybe to hear empathy or sympathy. Remember that, uh, you know, in black and white text, you don't really get tone. So, you know, if you're calling little Johnny's mom to let him, her know that Johnny, you suspect Johnny's torn his ACL, maybe that's not best communicated in a text message or an email. So with phone calls, 
Obviously, always introduce yourself at the onset of it. Maybe try to open with a surface level personal question. Um, How's your day going? Or um, hope everything is well. Um, You know, something along those lines. Obviously, when you're introducing yourself, be sure to give your title and the organization that you're calling from. And then kind of dive into it. So if you're going to be delivering some unhappy or uneasy news, I would start to try to communicate that with some background as opposed to just jumping right in and saying, I think Johnny tore his ACL. Instead saying, we were playing a game, there was a collision, Johnny fell to the ground, was holding his knee upon my evaluation, da 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 It just comes across a little bit more palpable for who is listening to it. Now, let's say you're not necessarily calling to deliver news. Maybe you're just having a conversation with somebody. Uh, Maybe you're on a conference call, something like that. If that's the case, I would recommend having bullet points or some kind of outline in front of you of what it is that you want to accomplish on that phone call. Oftentimes when people get on the phone, they deter away from what it is that they meant to talk about. And then before you know it, you're off the phone and you didn't even get your points across. So leading up to the phone call, try to spend some time thinking about what exactly is it that I need accomplished on this phone call? Because again, there's re- there's a reason why you're calling instead of emailing. If it was something that is just a quick exchange, it probably could be sent in an email as opposed to having to get somebody on the phone. So make sure that you have that in front of you. And then in that conversation, that dialogue, that conference call, whatever it is that you're on, make sure that you're an active listener and that you're giving and getting feedback on what is being discussed. For me, there's nothing worse than feeling like I'm on one side of the phone detailing what it is that I need to get done or to get across. And then there's just silence on the other end when I'm finished talking or there's no um, you know, remittance of what it is that was just talked about. So I definitely make sure that I'm focused and listening when the other person is talking. Sometimes I even take notes on what it is that I want to reply to. But I think it's it's important to be active on both sides of that call to bring discussion points to the conversation, but then to also listen to what they're saying and reply back to them. You know, the biggest thing I can say that... Uh, kind of feeds into having these bullet points and being an active listener is just don't ramble. There's nothing worse, again, than being on the other side of it and someone's going on and on and on and you're trying to be an active listener and you're you're trying to be engaged in what they're talking about. But, you know, aside from like an anecdotal story or, um, you know, something that's really detail-oriented, it, it just doesn't make sense to, to keep going on. So, It helps me not to ramble, and I think it helps for other people to, um, maybe if you interject or you just try to say, okay, yeah, you know, I hear what you're saying. And then, um, you know, of course, always close with um, maybe recapping maybe what the action points will be as a result of your discussion so that each party knows what they need to follow up on. And again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your consideration in this. Thank you for your understanding. All of those things are really great endings to conclude a phone call with. And then also maybe um, what you're going to, when you're going to follow up. So not only those action points of what you will follow up on, but then when you anticipate to hear back from each other. Let's move on to dress code. This is probably one of the most highly debated topics that I see on social media. One athletic trainer taking a picture of another athletic trainer. Oh my gosh, look what they wore to this game. Or an athletic trainer asking, hey, do you guys wear uh, sweatpants to work? Do you wear 
um, issued athletic apparel, things like that. There's a few things to take into consideration with dress code. One is environment. Are you indoors? Are you outdoors? Do you live in California? Do you live in New York? Do you live in Texas? Do you live in Florida? Those types of things are going to play a factor in how you dress and what you wear. Also, your setting. Uh, Are you in a professional sport? Are you in the performing arts? Are you in a high school setting? Are you in a youth setting? Are you in a clinical setting? Those as well are going to be a factor in determining what it is that you wear every day. So again, listening and thinking about erring on the side of caution, knowing that these are more universal applications. They may not apply to your specific setting, but try to think about how they would apply to majority of athletic trainers. I am of the mindset that you can never be overdressed or overeducated. So I would say that until you know otherwise, you should be the best dressed person in that room. If you're not sure in covering an indoor sport, whether other people wear a suit and tie or not, you should probably wear the suit and tie until you realize otherwise that khakis and polos would be permissible. With that, I would say no tank tops and to wear closed-toed shoes. I think that closed-toed shoes is pretty obvious with the work, the type of work that we do, but I personally have worked at the beach with USA Beach Volleyball or on a pool deck with USA Water Polo, And I do know that there are exceptions to the rule. So again, use your environment to try to dictate that. It would make absolutely no sense for me to try to trudge through the sand at USA Beach Volleyball in sneakers. I just go barefoot. But that is a pretty universally accepted and understood way of presenting yourself at this type of match. So... With the exception of an environment like that, I would say that probably closed-toed shoes are the best option. Tank tops, even when I'm working on the beach, I was in Cayman Islands, the heat index was 115 degrees, I still didn't have a tank top on. To an extent, that's my level of comfort, and I do think that that does play a part of it, but I just remember always that I am a medical practitioner and I just didn't feel comfortable even in that level of heat wearing a tank top. So I still had a t-shirt on. It was breathable, uh, you know, the moisture wicking kind of idea, but I still just felt more comfortable and more presentable, a little bit more covered up. Same idea with shorts. An appropriate length short is really important. You could have been all covered up on the top side, but if you've got your booty cheeks hanging out on the bottom side, it kind of undoes all of the conservativeness that you've got going up top. So I I do think that there are varying lengths of appropriateness when it comes to the length of your shorts, uh, especially for women, depending on how long our legs are or different things like that. Um, You know, I like the fingertip rule, you know, basically that when you stand up, your shorts should be the length of where your fingertips hit. But I do also know that sometimes it's difficult to find lengths that are exactly that size. So if they end up being a little bit shorter, okay, but maybe again, err on that side of caution, get that Bermuda short length that cuts right above the knee as well. Even when I was in Cayman with 115 degree index, I still had an appropriate length short on. I don't think that those types of things should be compromised because hot is hot is hot. Doesn't matter if I have an appropriate length short or bikini bottoms on, I'm gonna be hot. So I would rather present myself more professionally and be respected more professionally by wearing something that's a little bit more appropriate. When you're wearing athletic wear, um, again, this is more directed at the women because I don't think that the guys suffer from this as much, but 
I do what's called the bend and check. So um, let's say you're wearing like a yoga pant, which I know, again, is still up for debate whether that's appropriate or not. Um, let's say that you've deemed it appropriate for your setting. Maybe you work in the performing arts and you know, you have dancers and, and performers and everybody is in spandex all day long. And so it makes sense for you to be able to wear that. So if you've got it on, go ahead and bend down in front of that mirror and just make sure that it's not too sheer. Um, you know, as you're going throughout your day, you want to be able to be comfortable, get into different positions to treat your patients. So just make sure that nothing is showing through, or if it is that you've got something maybe to tie around your waist or to cover that up, maybe a long shirt, something along those lines. Also with the bend and check for women with the, with the tops that we wear, I always make sure that when I'm bent over, you can't see down my shirt. I learned this the hard way in undergrad. We had just cotton t-shirts that they made us wear and the neck had gotten stretched out on one of mine. And I was informed by an athlete that I was stretching um, that he could see down my shirt. Thankfully, I just had a sports bra on and he did it very respectfully. But ever since then, I always thought I would hate to be bent over taping an ankle or doing a mulligan technique or something like that. And instead of being respected for the techniques that I'm doing, I've got an athlete looking down my shirt. So Always remember that bend and check, ladies. Gentlemen, I'm not sure uh, that you have to deal with this. Maybe your bend and check is to make sure that your pants have enough looseness in them that you could kneel down. Um, but I think that this is maybe probably more of an issue that the girls face. Another recommendation directed at my female athletic trainers out there, I would definitely recommend natural looking makeup. Blue eyeshadows, purple eyeshadows, green eyeshadows, maybe with the exception of them being school colors on a special day. Um, I just don't think that they have a place in uh, what we're doing. Again, if you want to be respected and seen as a professional, you have to present yourself as such. And I'm not necessarily saying that wearing colored makeup makes you unprofessional, but we want to make sure that we are appealing to the largest audience possible. So maybe there's a parent out there. Maybe there's an athlete out there. Maybe there's a coach, a physician, someone that you may interact with that day that just doesn't see that as looking very nice. And so again, why don't we err on the side of caution, try to keep those tones that we're wearing on our face more neutral. This includes lipstick, you know, um, some of us prefer like a bright colored lipstick. Again, I would say choose maybe a lip gloss, a chapstick, something that is more natural looking so that we, uh, you know, heaven forbid you end up doing CPR on somebody and you've got red lipstick wrapped around the ring of their mouth. That just doesn't look very good. So just keep that in mind as you're preparing yourself from day to day. Um, Last one here for my ladies. I know that there is debate about heels, especially with indoor sports. My thing is just don't wear them. I think that it would make it difficult to accomplish anything where you had to sprint or get to somebody very quickly. And even if you feel like you could manage that pretty well, Think about how other people would view you sprinting across a stage, sprinting across a court, uh, or any other venue in heels. Some people might think, wow, that's pretty impressive. She did a good job with that. But other people might think, how absurd is it that the medical provider is sprinting across the arena in heels? So those are those few people that we just don't even want to give them something negative to say. So I would say wear some flats, wear some loafers, get your pants hemmed so that it looks appropriate with them just kind of dusting the floor, hitting right at your ankle. I would just say no heels unless absolutely necessary or unless deemed by your specific environment. I really just think that it's much safer, both for us, um, but also just for the image of the profession just avoid them. For my ladies and for my gentlemen, 
I think that being well-groomed and having good hygiene is good common practice as the healthcare practitioner. Someone who's got a bunch of dirt under their nails, uh, didn't doesn't look like they brushed their hair, maybe doesn't have the best smelling breath, things like that. Those are not the type of people that a patient wants to be treated by. Again, even if we're not working in that clinical or sterile environment, we still want to present ourselves as clinical and sterile people. So making sure that your nails are trimmed, that they're cleaned, that your hair is pulled back, that your beards or your facial hair is trimmed and well-groomed, I think that those are good common practices. The last little bit here under dress code are tattoos and piercings. I'll share a story with you a little bit later on how different regions and areas kind of approach the visualness of tattoos and piercings. I think it's just safe to have them either covered up or non-distracting. So like an eyebrow piercing is probably more distracting than like a small stud of a nose piercing. Um, Obviously ears are probably okay to a certain limit. And I think probably tattoos should mostly be covered up. Obviously if they are showing, it shouldn't be anything offensive to anybody. Uh, If I'm honest, I doubt that you would even get into an athletic training program if you had an offensive tattoo. Um, But again, There are more conservative people out there, so probably safer to just have those covered up. Smart tools are the next generation of IASTM tools on the market today and a leading manual therapy education company. Their medical grade stainless steel tools are of superior craftsmanship compared to competitors, but at a much more affordable price. When they started this company, they wanted to make the previously unaffordable affordable, and they've done just that. Visit them at smarttoolsplus.com. Let's move along now to social media. I do think that there is a little bit more universal acceptance as to what is appropriate or inappropriate to put on social media knowing that it kind of goes up there. And even if you delete it, it still has left a footprint. I think that we've come a long way with the advancement of different social medias and understanding how they represent us and knowing that job seekers are looking at these before you even get an interview. I know that I do. As soon as you apply to work with us on our website, one of the first things I do is go and check your social media. One, because I want to put a name to the face. I want to see if maybe I know who you are, or we have mutual friends, things like that. But two, I probably won't even let you get as far as interviewing with us if I don't think that from an image perspective, you're putting out what I would want my brand to align with. So just keep that in mind as you're posting stuff. Um, Remember that social media is for connecting. So this is not really the place that you should be selling yourself or your product or your service or whatever it is. Once you've made that connection with somebody, take your pitch offline. Shoot them a message and say, hey, what's your email? I want to send something over to you. Or um, thanks for connecting. Do you mind if I run an idea by you? Or I appreciate the friend request. Thanks for accepting. I've been looking for a mentor. Can I send you an email about this? I really don't think that posting on someone's wall or having uh, conversations under an Instagram post um, really are the best places for those types of conversations. I would say go ahead and take those into your, your private email area. I would definitely recommend that you leave any kind of curse words off of your posts. Um, Even if it's not a very vulgar picture, the comment underneath it can completely change the tone of what is in the image. So 
you know, even if you want to maybe put a curse word in there, maybe think of an alternative um, or use uh, other things that can portray what you're feeling about this picture in a less vulgar tone or just leave that off social media altogether. Shoot it to your friends in a private text message. Just make sure that it's not out there for anybody and everybody to see and so that it doesn't come back to you later on. I think that um, there are a little bit differing opinions on whether you should have drinks, alcoholic drinks in your pictures or not. I personally don't necessarily have an issue if I'm looking up somebody uh, that has an alcoholic beverage, they're holding a beer or something like that. Again, I think it's about context. Um, are they bent over, hair is all crazy, and there's a beer in the picture? Or is it, um, you know, just three people, four people lined up together and one person happens to be holding a beer? I don't necessarily think that that's so bad. Um, I also think it's about the accumulation of pictures. So if every single profile picture that you've got there's a beer, there's a drink, there, we're at a bar, things like that, I may start to question what you do with your social life, um, you know, if I'm honest. So again, I don't think it's a hard no. Some people may disagree with me on that. Um, but I also think that you need to be cognizant of what are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about your life? What are you saying about you as a professional and the career that you want based on what you're posting in your social medias? I've also heard a little bit differing opinion on whether you should ask for pictures, take pictures, and post pictures with famous people or athletes that you are working with or have worked with. Personally, I think that because of the profession that we work in, it's a little bit more acceptable to ask for those kinds of pictures. Um, if you're anything like me, you're a huge sports fan. And so the opportunity to work with somebody I would want to capture in a picture. And I don't even think that it's necessarily inappropriate to share those pictures, but making sure that the caption that's going along with it is appropriate and understated, not, um, you know, look at who I partied with today or, you know, something along those lines. It's, it's more of, um, I had the opportunity to work with da-da-da or uh, so thankful for this experience or, you know, something like that where it's less about trying to get famous based on posting a picture with someone that you've worked with and more about showing appreciation for the experience and the opportunity or just your, your fandom for what it is that you just got to do. All right, let's move on to professional etiquette at conferences. I think that some of you may be upset with me for saying this, but I think get out of khakis and polos with one exception. If you don't have what you deem professional wear, I think that khakis and polos are safe. But I think that you present yourself much more professionally if you wear business attire. For gentlemen, that would be some kind of slack, closed-toed dress shoes or loafers, a business shirt, which it, it could be a polo. Um, I wouldn't say a sports polo, but maybe one that just has the polo collar and the three buttons. Um, otherwise, a full button-up dress shirt. I don't think you necessarily have to wear a tie. Obviously, you can. Uh, feel free to layer sweater vests or sweaters or um, business jackets on top of that. For the ladies, I think some type of uh, pant or capri or a long skirt or pencil skirt is appropriate. Some type of blouse uh, and some type of jacket or sweater, something along those lines. If you want to wear heels, I'd say that this is the place to do it. I still wouldn't recommend any type of six inch stiletto, um, but a little kitten heel or a little wedge or a pump, um, I, I definitely think is, is more than acceptable. So definitely 
guys, try to get out of those khakis and polos. You wear them every day. This is your opportunity to kind of express yourself in what you enjoy wearing and um, you know, kind of go in a little splurge and buy yourself a couple outfits for the next conference that you go to. I think that punctuality uh, in general, but at conferences is important. Um, at your kind of smaller, more regional or state level conferences that you attend, you probably don't have to get to the meetings crazy early to get a spot like you do at the NATA conference. Um, but I think it sort of says a little bit about you and the respect that you have for the speaker when you walk in late. Obviously, there's exceptions to this if you're coming from another meeting or something like that. But I would just say, do your best to be a little bit early, get a spot, get yourself situated, get your glass of water, sit with your friends, talk a little bit, try to get that out of the way so that when that speaker starts talking, you can give your attention to them. Conferences are usually a fantastic place to network and to meet new people. So make sure that you have your business cards with you. I personally am awful at this, so I'm taking my own advice when I say this. Um, but better than having your business cards is collecting business cards. So when you're meeting new people, maybe you have a business card, maybe you don't, collect theirs. Then when you're in front of them, don't try to get your agenda across in the first time that you're meeting them. Maybe it's a potential employer. Maybe it's someone that you've just been really eager to meet. Try not to uh, you know, expel all of that right in front of them. Take their business card and follow up with them after the conference. Hi, Mr. So-and-so, my name is Alicia. I met you at XYZ conference. It was a pleasure to meet you. I'm really interested in working for your organization. Something like that. Um, I think that uh, not only following up from a conversation that you've already had, but then putting it in a place where it makes sense to continue to have back and forth communication is a much better way to kind of get that agenda across because what's going to happen is you're going to see them at the conference. Maybe you're going to tell them what it is that you want to try to get out of this. And you know what they're going to say? Send me an email, give me a phone call, follow up with me after the conference. So Instead of feeling too pushy, I mean, obviously, if the time feels right, by all means, you know, I'll, I'll leave you to, to feel that out. But I think just kind of a general rule of understanding is don't try to do that in your first meeting. Try to get to know them. Do they have a dog? Where do they live? Are they married? What do they do in their free time? Try to connect on other outside things and then circle back with them when you're done. Make sure that, uh, you know, when you're meeting new people, extend your hand out, introduce yourself. If you're walking into a group that's already been chatting, break that silence. Don't feel like you need to be awkward or uncomfortable. Just kind of stand on the perimeter of the circle. Just kind of step in there. Hi, I'm Alicia. Nice to meet you guys. Don't mean to interrupt. Go ahead and carry on type of thing. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced it where somebody walks in and you're all kind of looking around like, who's this person? Or what are they doing here? Or it's really awkward that none of us have, you know, opened the circle to let them in type of thing. So, um, you know, it, when it comes to networking, you have to be personable. So go ahead and extend that out to the next person. The other thing about conferences is actually attend the meetings. As someone who is constantly looking for new applicants to represent our brand. I pay attention to this. I notice, are you at that 8 a.m. meeting? Are you at that 6 p.m. meeting? Have you been here most of the day? Do I see you as I'm passing in the hallway? Or are you that person that checked in to get the CEUs? Now you're laying by the pool. You don't show up till noon. You're done by three. Even when you don't think that people are paying attention, they're paying attention. So if you are going to take the time and the efforts and the resources to attend a conference, show your face, go to the meetings, try to present yourself professionally, because I guarantee you 
people are making mental notes about that. And whether they know it or not, sometimes it happens subconsciously, but I'll get all the way to the end of a weekend and I'll say, hey, I never saw so-and-so, or I only saw them register and I haven't seen them since, or their name pops up in my applicant database. And one of the first things that I remember about them is that they were laying by the pool drinking to our regional conference. So just realize that even when you're there and people are around, they're paying attention to these types of behaviors. So I would say, if you don't actually intend on listening to what's being spoken about at the conference, just forego it. Find another one that would pique your interest. Do your CEUs at home, network in other places, because I really do think that it just doesn't reflect well on you if you're that person. Moving on to some professional etiquette tips while traveling as the medical provider. One thing I can absolutely say is that remember you are the medical provider and that with that responsibility, you're always on. Even when you're traveling with adults, even if the whole team is going out, something like that, remember that regardless of what the context of the situation may be, as soon as something happens that requires medical attention, everybody's going to look to you. So if this is one of those trips where accommodations have been paid for, they're paying for you, all of those kinds of things, remember that uh, you know, even if all the coaches are going out to have drinks or, um, you know, there's some type of fun or social situation that's happening, just always remember not to get so intoxicated or inebriated that you wouldn't then be able to perform your medical responsibilities. That's not to say that you can't enjoy your time, that you can't have one or t- maybe two drinks, but just don't overdo it. Think to yourself, would I be able to perform CPR? Would I be able to coherently uh, administer medical advice or care if I needed to? Even if the other people are kind of letting go and having a good time and you want to enjoy that with them, just do it keeping in mind that you're a professional on a work trip. With that in mind, If you are going out for some drinks or you're going out dancing or you're going out to have a nice dinner, I would still say to dress appropriately and professionally. Not to say that you need to have on a pencil skirt and a blouse or something like that, but make sure that you know, you don't have a, a low cut shirt on or, um, you know, use your, your, um, bend and check idea where you're not see-through in the back or that your shorts aren't too short or, um, you know, kind of anything along those lines where again, you're still presenting yourself as an athletic trainer, as a medical professional, or just as a professional in general. If, they see you, um, you know, in professional clothing and presenting yourself well eight hours out of the day, and then they all decide to go out to a nice dinner and you've got on a strappy, low cut, really short, uh, tight red sparkly cocktail dress with six inch heels, they may start to think about you a little bit differently. And so just whenever you're packing for a trip, do only take those items that you think are appropriate for any professional to wear. Lastly, I want to kind of discuss professional etiquette with your patients. I think that this is probably an area that we don't think about as much or it happens more subconsciously. But knowing that we are that healthcare practitioner, think about how your physician or your nurse presents themselves in working with their patients and how that can translate over to you. So one thing that I think is really important, again, more focus on the females, but understanding appropriate positioning for yourself, but also the patient. Um, We have a little bit 
more sensitive areas than a man does, a male provider would. So understanding um, you know, where hands are placed or how we're stretching somebody or what our body positioning is when we're in those different uh, positions really kind of goes a long way if someone were to walk in in the middle of us doing that. So um, just keeping that in mind, kind of along that same line is knowing your setting. Are you working with minors? Is this an opposite sex situation? If that's the case, maybe you shouldn't be doing a hip spica by yourself in the locker room with a 12-year-old boy. Um, Or is it adults? And maybe there's um, several middle-aged men that maybe make crude comments. And for that reason, we shouldn't be alone with them. So Um, Again, also with the boys or the male providers, uh, I think that you have to be a little bit more cautious with uh, the females' sensitive areas, uh, making sure that you're informing them, um, you know, what you're going to do before you place your hands there and, um, you know, using a towel, going above clothing, things along those lines, um, you know, that we all kind of discuss usually going through school, but just keeping that in mind when you're, when you're uh, evaluating the setting that you're in. Kind of like we've already talked about um, in a phone call, but when you're delivering news, um, make sure that you're practicing that empathy, you're looking them in the eyes, you're talking in a compassionate tone, and you're showing sympathy for what they're going through. There's nothing worse than a healthcare provider, uh, doctors especially, that have poor bedside manners. If one of you have ever experienced this, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, And if you haven't ever experienced it, then don't be that practitioner that lets someone else experience it. And I think kind of going along with that, uh, answering questions and not getting annoyed by that, um, you know, there's nothing worse being the patient when you're trying to understand what's going on with your diagnosis or your treatment plan or how the evaluation was done than when you're asking questions and that practitioner seems to be annoyed or um, just doesn't have the time to answer them. It's really important that you take the time to answer not only the athletes, but the coaches or the parents' questions um, just to help them understand that's part of that empathy and the sympathy that we we are talking about practicing. Also displaying a realistic, but also a positive attitude towards the outcomes. So even if it may be a season ending or a career ending type injury, making sure that we're we're communicating that realistically, but we're also giving them positive outcomes to look forward to in that. Taking professional etiquette a step further and asking, when does it become an ethics issue? Principle four of NATA ethics states, members shall not engage in conduct that could be construed as a conflict of interest or that reflects negatively on the profession. It continues to say, members should conduct themselves personally and professionally in a manner that does not compromise their professional responsibilities or the practice of athletic training. Well, it's tough to draw a line in the sand where unprofessional etiquette could compromise your professional responsibilities. Maybe someone from the outside who is viewing your behavior wouldn't have such a hard time determining what is unethical. Like I mentioned before, we don't even want to give anybody the idea. We don't want to give anybody something negative to say about us. So just err on the side of caution. I have my own little anecdote that kind of goes along with that idea of uh, erring on the side of caution. So I did my undergrad at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, which is about 25 minutes south of the border of Georgia. So it was it was in the South. Um, and their rules on professionalism were much more strict 
than where I did my graduate education, which was Cal State Fullerton in Southern California. At FSU, we were not allowed to have any visible piercings or tattoos, no shirts that showed our shoulders, and shorts could not be shorter than two inches above the knee, and absolutely no jeans ever. Then I get to Cal State Fullerton where the whole staff is wearing jeans and one of the assistant athletic trainers has her nose pierced and they issued us sleeveless polos. So while I never did replace my small nose stud and now freely wear jeans, I do understand that there are differing opinions throughout the country on what is professional. Knowing that, Whenever I am meeting someone new or attending a conference, I usually take that more conservative approach that Florida State taught me. I'd like you to take a moment to reflect on the last time you met someone new in a professional setting. Perhaps it was at a conference or they introduced themselves over email or you were visiting another facility that had an athletic trainer there. Do you remember how quickly you took an inventory of their level of professionalism based on what was immediately presented to you? What were the things that you judged and what conclusion did you come to about that person? Though we may all have differing opinions on how strict our level of professionalism should be, perhaps there is a baseline we could all agree on and anything above and beyond is just that. What would it do for us professionally if there was a level of professionalism we all adhered to? Would we garner more respect? Would the public view us more as healthcare providers? After listening today, think about some actions that you can take to increase your levels of professionalism. Create an email template for emails where you're regularly introducing yourself to parents, other professionals, maybe clients. Go through your work wardrobe to get rid of those items that don't fit you well or have seen better days. Skim through your social medias and see if those photos accurately represent you as a professional. Or make a small note in your phone about key points when speaking to someone or pointers for the next time that you travel. Thank you for listening today. On our next podcast, we will be discussing hiring and firing. If you like what you're hearing in our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and share it with your other athletic trainers or leave a comment on our social medias. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Advantage. If you have questions regarding what we have spoken about here, use the hashtag Q and AT. And also, remember to send us your photos of everyday athletic training practices so we can show you how hashtag that's business. Thank you to Mr. Logistics who created the sound that you've heard here throughout.